Let us pray. Lord God, would you by your word now give us hope and joy and peace with the sweetness of this majestic passage. Be evident to our senses this morning. Give us the kind of hope and confidence that is the rightful inheritance of your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just uh, taking a little sip of water this morning. For some reason, my voice seems a little... I don't know what the right phrase is, nasal, gravelly. I was thinking through how to introduce John chapter 3, verse 21, and there are different ways of doing it, of course, as I've already indicated in the prayer before we started to look at it, that John, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, excuse me, not John, did I say John? I'm almost ready for a holiday, John, Romans, you know, wow, okay, come on, get with it, Moody. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. The way I thought of doing it was by um, someone called John Cleese. Have you heard of John Cleese? Manic comedian, you know, funny arms, funny walk. That guy? Yes, someone knows John Cleese. Um, Not your typical sort of reformed orthodoxy way to introduce Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But I think it actually works. Here's why. And you will discover that it works, I hope. Uh, In one of his lesser-known movies called Clockwise, uh, John Cleese plays this sort of manic principal of a high school. And at one point, when everything is going wrong, he says to his secretary something like this, it's not the despair that gets to you, it's the hope I cannot stand. And you kind of know what he means. It's not that things are going wrong, it's the hope that things might go right when you know they're not going to. And so I think from that movie, maybe it was already a phrase that was around in culture, but from that movie comes the common phrase, it's the hope that kills you. A phrase familiar enough to Cubs fans around the world. (laughs) It's the hope that kills you. And the reason why that line has been coming in my mind as I've been thinking about this is the question that derives from this passage in terms of the end benefit of this verse, which is hope. And the question that comes to my mind is, what if there is a hope that does not disappoint? How would that change us? Now, at some levels, Christians, we know that there is a hope that does not disappoint. But what if we not just knew it, but knew it? (laughs) See, this verse that I'm preaching on this morning, this subject that we're beginning to discuss this morning, has been so transformative in the lives of many non-religious people, but also many religious people as well, because of this issue of hope. Not the John Cleese kind of hope. It's the hope that kills you, but solid, certain hope that does not disappoint. Look at at chapter 5 of Romans. 
Paul now begins to give the benefits of understanding, Romans 3, verse 21, he, and chapter 4, and he says, therefore, and as they say in Bible study, whenever you see a therefore, you have to know what it is there for. In other words, it's building on what's come beforehand, and he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is this righteousness of God that's the theme of this sermon this morning, because it's the theme of verse 21 of chapter 3, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's more than just hope, but we're focusing on hope for a reason that you'll see in a moment. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What a phrase. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You could preach on that sentence for a year. (laughs) I don't think I will, but maybe I should, I don't know. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And again, you could preach on that a lot. Not that, of course, Paul is some kind of, you know, I enjoy suffering kind of person. But because even in the midst of sufferings, there's a higher purpose. That our sufferings as Christians have a purpose that we can see in the cross. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces pers- uh, endurance, endurance produces character, character produces, we know that because of what the cross and the resurrection did, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame or disappoint us. Three times repeated, hope, 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 because God's, has, uh, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which He has given us hope, hope, hope. Solid hope that does not disappoint. So hence, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, which is the basis and the foundation of such hope. Let me read it for us. When we understand this verse, it gives us rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. How do we get that? We understand this verse. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. I want you to see this verse as like a door that opens into a celebration room, the celebration room of the Bible. When you look at it, everything is finely tuned, carefully argued, put together just right. At the same time, everything is loud and happy and celebrating and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. This is the entrance door to that celebration room. Martin Luther put it like this. Verses 21, 26, chapter 3 are the, he said, the chief point, the very central place of Romans and of the whole Bible. Wow. This is the entrance door to that celebration room. And when I come back from uh, holiday in England for just a few weeks, we're going to have in a moment, I'll be here for the celebration weekend next weekend, but... Uh, I won't be preaching that weekend, but when I come back into the pulpit after, all, after our little bit of a break, I will, God willing, lead us through more of this, but I want us to have the hope that this passage gives by comparing then with now. That's what's going on in this passage. It's a comparison, but now. Well, something's happened beforehand. Then, now, for the purpose of rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, then compared with now. So first then, but now, but now. So then, what hap- what's he comparing this to? What's he contrasting this with? 
It's an enormous change. It's what I called in our staff meeting this week a transitional adversative of a majestic kind. Now that sounds a little highfalutin, which perhaps it is. Consider this. Pastor, one of the pastors in our staff meeting shared that when he was at Wheaton Chapel, one of the visiting preachers was talking about such transitional adversatives. See, one of the unfortunates in the English language is that the word that's pronounced but also can be spelt B-U-T or B-U-T-T. And so rather unfortunately, this visiting preacher at the chapel said, and one of our pastors remembered this, talking about all these majestic transitional verses, he said, there are many big buts in the Bible. Yeah, you can imagine what college students would do with that. So it's a transitional adversative of a majestic kind, okay? Paul's making a case that there's this change, a switch. It's like someone driving a car, pulling a handbrake, and there's a squeal of the wheels, and there's almost like a donut that's been done in an empty car park. But now, then, now. See, beforehand, everything can be under the wrath of God. From verse 18 of chapter 1, sort of like an extended Gothic clothing line, fashion store kind of feel to it. Then it changes. Then it was like the whole world had gone mad. I, I was thinking it's a bit like if you've ever seen Homer Simpson, which I'm sure none of you ever have, The Simpsons. Homer Simpson has this moment when sometimes he goes to his uh, the nuclear sort of factory and he's playing with the buttons. <laughs> it's a bit like Homer Simpson sitting at the controls of his nuclear power plant. And he's saying, I wonder what this button does. I wonder what this button called worship does. Chapter 1, verse 22. Let's twit it around a little bit to make images we worship. Of course, that never happens anymore, does it? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living just for today. I love that song. It's a pity about the lyrics. I wonder what this button called sex does. Chapter 1, verse 25. How's that playing out right now in our society? So Paul deals with all that, and then you come to chapter 2, verse 1, as it were. I wonder what this button called self-righteousness does. If we don't play with any of the others, we'll definitely play with that one. So he says, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same things. So if it's not non-religious, it's religious. We're in this sort of Homer Simpson imbecility playing with these different buttons in the nuclear power plant of God's creation. It's almost funny in, in, in many ways. You know, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg left to stand on, you know. Is it wrong to find it funny? Well, it's certainly serious, but sometimes I wonder whether the only way we can see the truth about ourselves is to laugh at ourselves. 
Sometimes in religious circles, it's good to laugh. You know, the, the, those church signs that you see when you drive down the road in some little village or down the highway, and you think, did they really put that on the church sign? You drive by and go, yeah, they did. Of course, it is serious. What could be more serious than Romans 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20? The, the Jews blamed the Greeks, the religious blamed the non-religious, and the whole world didn't have a leg left to stand on. Or as Paul puts it in chapter 3 verse 10, there's no unrighteous, not even one. You see, the first casualty of self-righteousness is the inability to laugh at yourself, don't you think? It reminds me of the famous story of the great missionary leader, J. Oswald Sanders, in a very great and famous church in Scotland. They one Sunday had invited in a well-known young preacher who had a bit of a reputation for being a hothead. Before the service, as was traditional in those days, the preacher gathered with the elders to pray in the vestibule. And After the prayer, one of the elders said to this visiting young preacher, the young man, the hothead, now, young man, just remember where you are. You are at St. So-and-so, the name of the church best left forgotten in this context. And so this hot head of a young preacher got up into the pulpit. In those days, they made the pulpit so large and so big and so high, you had to have grappling irons and ice picks just to get to the top. And you needed an oxygen mask once you were there so you didn't get lightheaded. You know the kind? And there he was, and he opened the Bible at the famous text in Revelation and began to read, How I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you are neither, I'm about to. And then he stopped, shut the Bible, looked down and said, Oh no, I am at St. So-and-so, and sat down. The shortest sermon ever preached in that great church, I would think, and one of the more memorable. Isn't religious pride a tricky thing? It's like wrestling a tiger with a toothpick. Sometimes people think that it's a very great and wonderful thing when you convince a criminal that they're a sinner, but Often such people know they've done wrong at one level or another. No, it's far harder to convince someone who thinks they're religious and good that they too are a sinner. I think as so often Charles Spurgeon had the best line on it, writing in his Sword and Trowel magazine, he titled his piece, Humility and How I Achieved It. can't write the book on humility, can you? It's pretty difficult to do, and it's hard to preach from a pulpit about the need for people, even religious people, to realize they're sinners. But we are, and so are pastors, and so are preachers. So Paul kind of goes on and on about this, and you, you, you think as you read it, you think, hey, Paul, give us a break. Paul, I've got your message now. Can you just stop going on and on about it? Why does he keep repeating himself and circling back and saying, oh, no, that's not an excuse, and oh, no, that won't let you off, and oh, no, that's not an exception. No, it's everyone. Why does he do it? Because as all the great preachers and evangelists have recognized, there is no point holding out the righteousness of God to people who don't think they need it. 
religious people and non-religious alike. Preachers from George Whitfield to Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley, they all used to call it law work. Recognize our need. Lloyd-Jones even said, no one can be a Christian without realizing his utter hopelessness. That's a cheery thing to say, isn't it? Unless, once you actually realize it, once you actually understand it, it leads to a far greater, substantial, true, lasting hope and joy and peace. And so we're moving through this transitional adversative to the righteousness of God, the now that comes after the end, but the, the then, but then, but my dear friends, people I love and serve and give my life to and for as much as I'm able in the power of the Spirit, I want us to realize the profound truth of what Paul is saying in these chapters 1 and 2. It's the three-letter word absent from even some pulpits today. Sin. And if we cannot see it seriously, can we at least recognize it humorously? Will that get under the radar of our of our defense mechanisms, laughing at ourselves like the bulletin blooper I saw once, the choir invites any member of the congregation who enjoys sinning to join the choir. (laughs) One little letter. (laughs) Taking ourselves seriously enough as made in the image of God not to worship ourselves but to worship our Creator. Then, now, the image that came to mind as I was thinking about this this week, I'm afraid it's almost like we move from being stormtroopers to Jedi Knights in this verse. Verses 21 and 26 are simply divided into four sections. Let me just give them for you for your notes or for... Your understanding, verse 21, this transitional versative, it echoes the theme of chapter 1, verse 17, the righteousness of God from faith to faith. And Paul is now saying, okay, Romans, I'm now picking up this theme again. I'm returning to it. Now you realize you need it. Here it is, the righteousness of God. So there's that part of this passage. And then 2, verses 22 to 23, how everyone is equal in sin is also equal in being offered salvation by faith. A wonderful, wonderful couple of verses. And 3, verses 24 to the first part of 25, it's about the cross, the redemptive act of Jesus dying for us. That's the ground and basis and source for this righteousness. Again, such, such beauty and riches there. And then verse 25 to the second half of 26, how this not only justifies us, but it also even declares that God is just as well, that God can both be just and justify The unrighteous, and he explains how that is the case. Here are rich jewels, more expensive than all the crowns that have adorned the crowned heads of all the monarchs that have ever existed. And we're just going to look at one briefly this morning. Verse 21 has in it enough to make the hardest-hearted weep with hope. And the tender-hearted float out on air. Let's take it in reverse order. 
not only because this is my last weekend here for a little bit in the pulpit, I'll be around next week, but I won't be preaching, and as it's the last Sunday here in the pulpit, it's fun to shake things up a bit. But, uh, no, not really, because the key point is the now that occurs at the beginning and with which I want to leave us and therefore come to last. Here are the four statements that lead to hope. So one, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What does that mean? It means the Jewish Scriptures. It's one of Paul's code phrases for the Old Testament. It's used this way sometimes in the Bible, the law and the prophets. Now, I wonder, my friends, whether you remember the first time someone, as it were, gave the Bible back to you so now you could understand it and use it and read it. I remember that experience. I remember clearly where it was in a study, realizing as we did this together with the little group that the whole Old Testament pointed to Christ. Suddenly the Bible was given back to me, how the promise that there'll be a serpent crusher right the way back to Genesis chapter 3 was eventually long after fulfilled, how the question of who this Redeemer figure would be was asked over and over again in the Old Testament, and there were different Redeemer figures sent for partial redemption until finally the, capital T, Redeemer, capital R, came. It's like, oh, that makes sense. Or how David is, is promised that his son will reign forever, but reign forever, that wasn't Solomon, clearly, and it could, it's the eternal son of David, Jesus himself, who does reign forever. It's like, oh, that makes sense. Or how Isaiah says that the child will be born who will be called mighty God. Think of that. Mighty God, a child will be born in Isaiah, and that promise fulfilled in none other and no one else, and no other place than in Jesus. Or even the book of Proverbs, this, this personification of wisdom. Let me give you a little bit of it. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, before His deeds of old. I was appointed from eternity. And the original readers must be thinking, what does that mean? How, how, who is this me who has been appointed that was from eternity? And that category of wisdom then explodes into the person of Jesus. You go, that makes sense. Or how all the Old Testament sacrifices of this and that and all the rituals that seem so bizarre sometimes. And then you read the book of Hebrews and you realize that uh, they are all a reflection of a template that's revealed in the real temple, namely Jesus who died for us, sacrifice. For us, and you get this sense of one metaphor after another colliding. So, as John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that, that can begin to be grasped as like a person observing something so massive. He can only describe parts of it at one time, and more and more unravels in his mind as he looks at it from different perspectives. You go, oh, I can begin to see. And so we don't read the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, as a random book of stories. We read it as all pointing to the righteousness of God. There are many books that can help you with this. There's a book called Gospel and Kingdom by Graham Goldsworthy that's helped many people, and there are many others. 
You'll find that it's sometimes by story. Nehemiah that we'll be looking at together over the summer months has this sense of exciting story. It builds and builds, and yet it ends on a cliffhanger. And you wonder, why on earth would anyone end their story that way? And the reason is because the fulfillment is yet to come. It's in Jesus by story. Sometimes by direct prophecy, all we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on Him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all, a direct prophecy. Sometimes by what's called typology, great King David, anointed Messiah, literally, who's the type of the anointed, the Messiah, the Christ, same word to come. So subtly, overtly, profoundly, obviously, for the original readers, yes, a powerful message. You must not forget that. But so powerful, so potent, that as it were, it lands at the feet of one called Jesus on the shore of Galilee. Yes, it's him. The law and the prophets testify to the righteousness of God. But then, in reverse order, it is, though, apart from the law. That's a strange conundrum, isn't it? How can the law and the prophets point to it, and yet it be apart from the law? Well, it's not so strange when you begin to look into it. What Paul is saying here is law there means not only something to do, which we cannot, any of us, perfectly do, which he's made abundantly clear in the first couple of chapters of Romans, though surely it includes that, Paul is saying here he is referring to the system or the stage in God's plan. Then, and there's a new stage, now, a new development. So the old stage was primarily under the wrath of God. Though, of course, salvation was offered at that point, then through faith, as Paul will make clear, Romans chapter 4, even then, yes, that is true. We must not forget that. Abraham justified by faith and all the rest. But there is still now a new stage apart from law, which the law and the prophets testify to, and which we now have because of the coming of Jesus. It's something new. What is that? Something new leads us to three, the righteousness of God. Righteousness, the moral perfection required to be in a right relationship with God. Righteousness of God, the perfect moral achievement of Christ given to those who believe in Him through their faith. Of course, Paul will explain that more in chapter 4, the crediting of God's righteousness, this great theme of Romans. In other words, salvation as a Christian is not only about being forgiven our sins, though it is that gloriously, it's also about having a right standing before God, God's righteousness because of what Jesus did on the cross. This has been made known. It has been manifested. It happened at a certain point, at a certain time, in this new stage, this now, that is, at the cross. And all of this, first of all, in the reverse list, number four, is now. 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 It's such a structure. Spirit now, make these words 
live in our hearts as you breathe new life, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. First, let us have clarity, for the Spirit always brings light. Second, let us have biography, for the work of the Word affects real people's lives. Third, by poetry or hymns or songs, for the artistry of the soul in response to these words to be rewritten on each of our hearts. So, clarity. Let us state that here we are talking about the real doctrine of justification by faith alone that allows those who understand it, who put their trust in Jesus and grasp its truth, to have the total and complete assurance and exalt and abound in the hope of the glory of Jesus. Let us be clear. If as a Christian we fall into sin, it happens, we fail, we're tempted, we fail, we know it. Does that mean that our salvation is now taken away? People often think so or they fear that it might be so and therefore they live under condemnation. Let us be clear. If we think that one bad deed can take away our justification, it can only be because we are thinking or we do not quite understand that no good deed uh, is uh, sufficient to our justification. We haven't grasped that. See, justification is by faith, from faith to faith, only faith, apart from law to which the law and prophets testify, and therefore, and I can repeat the sentence twice because when I said it to my wife, she told me to do so, and I listen when she says things like that. Therefore, as no good deed of yours has contributed to your justification, so no bad deed of yours can remove your justification. Therefore, as no good deed of yours has contributed to your justification, so no bad deed of yours can remove your justification. Such is the strong doctrine of the Bible, which can be misused, but so can all truth. And yet, when rightly understood, leads to us abounding in the hope that does not put us to shame, that does not disappoint us, the hope of the glory of God. And then let us have biography to trace these truths in the lives of real people. I've already mentioned this series, how the great Augustine was converted through reading Romans. Tole lege, tole lege, the child said, take and read. He read it and was forever changed. 
Many will know how Martin Luther was similarly impacted. This religious person grasped the truth. This is what he said. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. Others will know how that uh, experience of Luther's was used in the story of John Wesley. Wesley, leader of as serious a religious body as could be imagined, nicknamed the Holy Club, pious and given to sacred studies and private and public religious exercises, he said, as Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans was read to him, Wesley said this, about a quarter before nine, while Luther was describing, as it was read to him, the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine and saved me from the law of sin and death. In some ways, the whole of that great awakening that took place comes down to that realization of profound assurance and hence confidence that came from it. Less well-known, Dmitri Konolescu, studying at the Orthodox Theological Seminary in Bucharest, he decided to translate the Bible into modern Romanian. Studying Romans, became convinced that sinners may be justified freely in Christ and was assured he belonged to God, transformed him. And then in the biography of our lives today, F.F. Bruce, great scholar, put it like this, very ordinary men and women have had their lives transformed by this message too. So there is no saying what may happen when people begin to study the letter to the Romans. Well, one thing will happen if we grasp it, and that is rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Confidence, certainty, assurance. You see, when we know that our destiny is certainly glory, our present is freed to live with abounding hope. So the devil comes along, doesn't he? And he accuses you and he brings up something that you did or something you thought, whatever it is. What do you say? You say the righteousness of God. It's not mine. It's his. I've always loved uh, Charles Simeon's response to accusation, false criticism that he received at one point or other and was being criticized in the press. Simeon is reputed to have replied, if only they knew more about me, they would have far worse things to say. It's not his righteousness, not ours, not mine, it's God's. It frees us, doesn't it? It frees us to say Sorry. You know, I messed up. I did something wrong. 
Your status is not changed by such a confession. It's secure. It's not your righteousness. It's His, God's. You just say, I'm sorry. And then you're able to forgive. Why? Because it's not your righteousness. It's not, it's not about your nose being put out of joint. You, you being shamed for those I hope that will never give you shame. You don't have to be defensive. You can live with freedom of purpose. And so as we get this right, then our human relationships are put right. You see. works in family life. It works in church life. It's not our righteousness. It's His. I'm so sorry. That's all right. I forgive you. You move on. You go and play baseball, whatever it is you like to do. It's His righteousness, not ours. One of the things that happens to you as a pastor is you get to know more and more slightly obscure parts of hymnology and different Modern songs were in the last couple of months as well as ancient ones. One of my favorite lesser-known hymn writers has the glorious name of Augustus Top Lady. If you've uh, recently conceived a child and you're struggling together as to which name to choose, you cannot agree, just choose Top Lady. Fantastic. Augustus Top Lady lived from 1740 to 1780. Uh, 78. He was famous, most famous for the hymn Rock of Ages, but he also wrote this about hope. Listen to it. There's one line towards the end. I particularly want you to notice, though, this stanza is all great. Listen to it. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity would on a raise. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given. That means the the earnest of the Holy Spirit won through the work of Christ on the cross. It's 18th century shorthand for all that. As sure as the earnest is given. Now here's the line I want you to hear and remember. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. More happy. Well, yes, of course. <laughs> but not more secure. the glorified spirits in heaven? Why? The righteousness of God? Or more famously, Charles Wesley wrote this, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine, alive in Him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne. And claim the crown through Christ my own. We're going to sing that hymn in a moment. Clothed in righteousness divine. So bold. Confident. Assured. Certain. Rejoicing and abounding in the hope of the glory of God. It's the righteousness divine, the righteousness of God. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. 
Oh, power of hell. Not just maybe a little bit that we haven't thought about before. No scheme of man, not a really, perhaps a really clever one or a new geopolitical development or some little scheme that's going on in the office and your family. No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Ever. Not maybe or sometimes or occasionally. Ever. Never. Never. How can that be true? The righteousness of God. So with this, a firm grasp of the gospel of the righteousness of God, we will avoid what John Stott described as churches relaxing their grip on the gospel, fumbling it, and we'll avoid living by our feelings rather than what Christ has done, living by our performance rather than what Christ has done, living focused more on our sins, then on God's mercy. All overcome by realizing it's no longer then. It is now. This time, this age, this part of the clock on God's whole salvation plan When after Christ's death and resurrection, all those who believe in Jesus now can have a sure and certain hope and therefore free from self-condemnation, free from performance-driven pretense, free from subjective feelings, you know, being blown this way and that by whatever the circumstances of your lives may have been this week. And instead, standing on the righteousness of God like a rock. Such is Romans 3 verse 21. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, I want to pray that you would release a struggling brother who wonders whether what he did or said has uh, removed his salvation, that you would cure that ailment, not by my words, but by the truth in your word, the righteousness of God. That you would uh, cure him of the self-doubt that is so often a flip side of pride. Take his eyes off himself. look at the cross and the righteousness of God in Jesus as His. 
Our Lord, we stand together against the devil and his accusations, longing to accuse his people of not being good enough, of not working hard enough, of not feeling or thinking the right things. We all know that those things are true and far worse things are true of us, and yet we stand against such lies and accusations because we have your righteousness, God. And so would you give us the freedom and confidence to start new movements of evangelism for you? To train our children, not wondering whether we're hypocrites, because we're all hypocrites. And yet we have the righteousness of God. To write books or preach sermons or go to work and tell a friend about Jesus, not wondering whether we have sufficient righteousness to do it, because it's, we don't. It's not our righteousness, Lord. It's yours. To come to church without thinking, well, maybe we don't deserve to be there because we're not right, wearing the right clothes. We're clothed in righteousness divinely. What does it matter what we wear? We have your clothes. be freed from judging each other by your Spirit to know that my sins, each of our sins, my guilt, each of our guilt, if we believe in you, Jesus, is gone. Gone. And not just gone, the account is recredited with your righteousness. So may we abound in the hope of the glory of God. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.